This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, a retrospective look at the Dominican Republic, the history they don't teach in most schools in the United States. But first, Sierra Hancock is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. The government of El Salvador ordered hundreds more members of the military into the country's streets this week in response to gang violence. The country's street gangs are supporting a transportation strike. They're enforcing that strike by killing any bus driver who picks up passengers, killing at least five this past week. The government reacted by arresting the head of the Barrio 18 gang, one of the two biggest gangs in the country. Eugenio Chicas, the presidential press secretary, promised the government now has regained control. We are guaranteeing there won't be any more of these assassinations of bus drivers. We're diminishing the danger of that situation. We are now in control of the security situation, and we're saying it's safe to go to work tomorrow. To enforce that guarantee, the government is now providing military escorts for public transportation. The government is also providing military trucks to get people back to work in a country struggling with both the gangs and the transportation strike. The Summer Olympics are just over a year away in Brazil, but those in some swimming and sailing competitions face the real danger of competing in water highly contaminated with raw sewage. In an investigative report this week, the Associated Press revealed some competitors training ahead of the Olympics in Brazil have already fallen ill. Brazilian officials had promised they would reduce pollution in the waters near the Olympic Village and in other spots that will host competitions. The promise was at least 80% less pollution by the Games in 2016. However, they now admit they won't hit that goal. Officials for the International Olympic Committee admit more must be done to make the sporting venues safe for the athletes. But they say they remain confident improvements will be made by next year. Some are calling Puerto Rico's financial crisis something comparable to the meltdown of Greece for the European Union. But so far, the U.S. Congress hasn't reacted in the same way and investors are bracing for the U.S. territory to miss a bond payment of $58 million that's due this coming weekend. Puerto Rico is attempting to restructure its debt, which now totals as much as $72 billion. The island's governor says Puerto Rico cannot immediately pay the debt, and he wants a two-year moratorium on bond payments to strengthen the island's economy. One of Mexico's most active volcanoes put on its own version of a fireworks show this week, shooting ash as high as two kilometers in the air. The volcano was called Popo Cathapetl, or just Popo for short. Popo was located about 40 miles south of Mexico City, and these eruptions often coat the cars and homes of those in the southern suburbs with ash. For Latin Pulse, I'm Sierra Hancock. Thanks, Sierra. This program is as guilty as many media outlets when it comes to tracking developments in the Dominican Republic, although we've been changing that a bit this summer. Many in the United States may not remember that this year marks the 50th anniversary 
of the U.S. invasion of the Dominican Republic, a country many simply call the DR. Back in 1965, U.S. President Lyndon Johnson decided to back a military government that had overthrown a left-wing president. The U.S. sent more than 42,000 troops into the country to stop a popular revolt. At the time, that was more troops than the U.S. had in Vietnam. We asked Tim Shank to reflect with us about this history that still resonates in the Dominican Republic. Shank recently returned from a research trip to the DR. He's with the Committee on U.S.-Latin American Relations at Cornell University. He joined us via Skype from Austin, Texas. I think people do know the story of the U.S. government intervention and sending 42,000 Marines to Santo Domingo in 1965 to basically stop the what was called the Constitutionalist Revolution that was trying to replace, to uh, reinstate Juan Bosch, who was their first democratically elected president in 1962. So in 65, the revolution came about to try to overthrow the military government that had ousted Bosch. And the U.S. intervention was there to sort of put a halt to that uh, return to a populist government. And I think Lyndon Johnson was really wary of, of having a second Cuba in the Caribbean. I do think there's a, a collective memory of what the 65 revolution meant for the island. How do you characterize that collective memory? Well, on one hand, for the Dominican political left, um, it was a huge blow because after the U.S. intervention in 65 basically brought the revolution to a standstill, they were able to negotiate and go to elections in the following year, 1966, where through a lot of shady dealings, Joaquin Balaguer, who was the dictator Trujillo's right-hand man for many years, came out as the victor. And then from 1966 to 78, uh, ran a very, very bloody and very repressive regime for 12 years, and then also came back into power for 10 years later on after that. And so um, he basically was was vindictive and and carried out over 3,000 political assassinations of the of the Dominican left, and basically wiped out most of a generation of critical thinkers and resistance to the emerging neoliberal order. So I think that still has repercussions. I think it's it's still really difficult to to come out in and critique the Dominican government. Uh, there have been a lot of there have been a lot of protests recently around um, resource extraction and around corruption in the government. So uh, I think that spirit hasn't been totally lost, and I think that's a real testament to those people who have kept the, the fires of resistance and, and critique burning. I would guess the way that you characterize that then is that the current government is very much in line with the Washington consensus, the uh, neoliberal economic model that the United States has tended to promote. <laughs> Well, it's been an interesting trajectory. What the the Partido de Liberación Dominicana, the PLD, who's in power now, started off as a fairly critical of the Washington consensus model in the late 70s and 
and now have become just one more uh, technocratic regime that, I mean, one of the senators recently, Felix Bautista, was found to have over $90 million in his, in his personal accounts after 15 or 20 years being pretty close to the president and being, in, being a senator in the DR. So I think a lot of what the ideals and the values that a lot of these political parties were founded on, I would also say the PRD, which was the main political opposition to the Trujillo regime in the 60s, has also taken a pretty significant turn to the right. And so it's it's pretty much Dominican Republic is open for business here and and that's that's pretty difficult I think for the majority of people who are just really having a hard time making ends meet and feeding their families. We've talked a lot about the contemporary economic and political situation and I'm guessing that um from where we started here and talking about the anniversary of the of the US incursion that um that you see this as a direct legacy of that U.S. invasion to change the political system in the country? Well, on one hand, the political system was already fairly well intertwined with U.S. interests and the interests of, we'd say, maybe transnational capital throughout the 20th century. The U.S. had a first intervention of the Dominican Republic and Haiti in 1916, uh, the U.S. troops stayed in the DR until the 1924, and then in Haiti all the way till 1935, where they were setting up. They were setting up national police and national guard, and also in charge of the international trade and commerce of the two countries for a long time. Um, so the dictator Rafael Trujillo came out of that experience. He came up through the the ranks of the the police, and then was dictator from 1930 to till his assassination in 1961. So I think the Dominican Republic's history is unique in some ways, but there's also a lot of common threads of, of what happened in many of the so-called banana republics of Central America. And I would, I would say it's a little bit less about about the U.S. intervention as such as one event, but maybe more of a, a long trajectory of transnational interests having a really big say in what happens in countries like this. Anything else that you think is important for us to know about that um, invasion period that we haven't talked about? Well, it continues to be a really big part of the collective memory of this of, of the Dominican Republic and I think it's something that United States citizens know very little about. I think before I moved to the D- DRI I, I didn't really understand what was going on in the 1960s not only in Vietnam. I think at the time of the US invasion of the Dominican Republic they had more soldiers on the ground in the DR than they did in Vietnam at that point and so it was a it was a considerable expense and it was a considerable uh, gamble on the part of the U.S. government to to try to tramp down what they understood what might be another communist threat in the region. So part of the legacy that I'm connected to now at Cornell is that in 1965, as a response to the U.S. invasion, 
a bunch of students and religious leaders at Cornell University founded CUSLAR, the Committee on U.S.-Latin American Relations, which I now coordinate. And so just as much as there's been a, a tendency of U.S. government and elites to try to bring, to try to sort of enrich themselves on the backs of Latin American countries, I think there's also been a, a really important tendency of regular U.S. citizens trying to educate themselves and others about, you know, what is the role of our country in the world and what is our history and and how can we bring a spirit of internationalism and solidarity to these relationships around the world. Give us some sense of the economic reality in the Dominican Republic. Obviously, it shares an island with Haiti, which is the country that has the, the most economic challenges in the hemisphere, the poorest country in the hemisphere. How does the Dominican Republic compare and how is the government there dealing with its own situation of poverty? There's a very considerable rate of poverty in the Dominican Republic. A lot of people uh, really focus on Haiti and for, for good reason. But the Dominican Republic still continues to, to struggle. It's the poverty rate is between 40 and 50 percent, depending on how you count it. Um, and extreme poverty looks a lot different between the countryside and the city. Uh, but there's a lot of folks just really struggling to get by. Uh, one number I heard when I was there recently was that over 60 percent of the Dominican workforce is self-employed, which could mean having your own small business, but mostly it means sort of working in the informal economy, uh, making things to sell, having a, a little kitchen in the back where you sell to friends and neighbors uh, for lunch, or just sort of any number of untaxable income where people seem to, to make it by. So it's, it's not in the category of some Latin American countries where you have a lot of transnational capital and investment coming in, although through the tourism in industry, that's, that's the number one income for, for the Dominican Republic. And number two is also remit remittances from Dominicans living abroad. Uh, so that's another huge part of the Dominican economy. And it might be what keeps a lot of people afloat who, who might have very irregular income streams. There's, there's a lot of back and forth now, obviously, with, with two generations of Dominicans going back and forth to the United States. And it's not, it's not just a one-time migration where you leave the island and then you set up camp or you set up your home life in New York and, and don't look back. I think there's been an incredible amount of back and forth. Um, a lot of families in New York will send their kids for summer vacation back to the island um, to be with aunt and uncle or to be with grandparents. So the relationship sort of at a people-to-people -people level has really deepened. There's always interests at play. And I don't think Dominican Republic is a, is a big priority for the United States right now in terms of bilateral relationships. The DR is part of uh, the free trade agreement, CAFTA, DR-CAFTA which is um, slowly lowering the tariffs on a lot of basic goods and necessities, especially agricultural products. 
so that's a thing that's that's making um, life considerably harder by the year as as Dominican farmers find it less and less profitable to keep to keep farming their land. Thank you so much. Tim Shank, the coordinator of the Committee on U.S. Latin American Relations at Cornell University, joining us on Latin Pulse today from Austin, Texas via Skype. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Rick. Coming up, more of the mostly forgotten history between the Dominican Republic and the U.S. Stay with us. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn. Indignate. Act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. This week, we're reflecting on the importance of 50 years since the U.S. invasion and occupation of the Dominican Republic. Helping us reflect, historian Lauren Derby of the University of California at Los Angeles, UCLA. Derby is the co-editor of the Dominican Reader. She joined us via Skype from Los Angeles. Her excerpts from our conversation. I really like the idea of, of you know, talking, re- reminding Americans about this, the 65 intervention, which it's, it's, it, it is palpable in Dominican memory. The 65 events, um, because they were so, because the battleground was the city and um, the poor neighborhoods. The thing about the, um, this period in Dominican history is, you know, it comes after the, um, the long, really uh, ruthless dictatorship of the Trujillo regime. And then Juan Bosch, who is this, a really erudite and extraordinarily um, charismatic president came into office in the first freely elected, uh, you know, in the, the first free elections in 38 years. Um, and he just, it was just a, he galvanized the, the youth and he, he, he promised social change. He promised land reform, all these reforms, which had been really delayed um, in the Dominican Republic because the Trujillo regime was so ruthless. And the U S intervened to, um, to, he, he was ousted by a military coup, and then the U.S. comes in, on the, uh, in to kind of quell the chaos and, and uh, protect U.S. Invest- investments. I mean, the way Dominicans remember this event is really, they, they remember it as really an, um, part of a process of unseating Bosch, even though there had been a military coup. Um, and the coup had come, what, about 18 months before this U.S. incursion, yes? Right, right. Um, the thing about this this intervention and civil war which followed, I mean, it was it was brief. It was a year, but the thing is that the, this this the, the the battlefields were all in the capital city of San Domingo. So the um, Hotel Embajador, which is in the on the um, the kind of coastal um, hotel zone of the city, became the helicopter port, and much of the fighting actually took place in the Barrios Marginados, the poor shanty town areas in the northern perimeter of the city. So areas like Capotillo, which was um, considered one of the hottest neighborhoods. And what they did was they would, um, they, they enlisted the help of teenagers who, um, who, 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 because they were, 
they could do reconnaissance um, kind of undercover. But the thing that, that I heard a lot about, um, I had a research assistant when I was doing my Trujillo project who had been one of the teenagers who threw Molotov co cocktails in Capotillo. And the thing that really, um, th that he told me about that I thought was so extraordinary is that the U.S. Marines, um, you know, one, the re one of the reasons why they, the, the fighting took place in the, in the shanty towns is because the U.S. Marines could not read the space. They could not understand how, you know, the, 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 how the houses operated, who lived where. You know, they just couldn't read the space at all. So it was perfect for, um, you know, for the for the the constitutionalists who were who were trying to um, they, they were trying to catch them off guards because they just could not understand the, how the shanty towns were organized. And so, and that's where a lot of the fighting took place. So. The um, a lot of the I, I assume that in the four thousand dead, I think a lot of them must have been children because children were very, um, very prominently represented in the in the fighting, and um, which is also uh, probably one of the reasons why it's it's so painfully remembered. And you can see it in the photography. One thing that strikes strikes me about the the photography is that the Dominican photograph that's most canonic of the U.S. occupation is this image um, of a, a U.S. Marine who's, who's, who's heavily armed, he's, you know, jack boots and he's got a machine gun and he's, he's, uh, he's in front of a, a Dominican who's basically kind of got this lip curled and he's, he's just got this look of out, just incredible anger, but he's obviously, um, you know, has, he has no, uh, you know, he's, he's unarmed, but it's this moment of kind of, you see moral courage in his face and if you if this is the canonic image of the Dominican photographs of the U.S. intervention, if you contrast this with the American photography, it's really striking. And I, this is a, a project which I may never do, but I hope somebody does is comparing the photographs of by Dominican photographers and U.S. photography, because the Domin the U.S. Photogra photography focuses on the kind of you know pictures of women in their house coats, the you know the unbathed children, the kind of path the patheticness. Of the Dominicans, they're so weak. They're, you know, they look like it looks like ads for for care. You know, doing, um, uh, you know, looking for soliciting funds. And there's this, there's there's a kind of pathos to, uh, to to this contrast that I think is really striking. You know, the Dominican Republic has been occupied twice by the United States. A lot of Americans don't even know that actually the U.S. Uh, occupied the Dominican Republic in the twenties. So this is kind of a there's a long history of frustrated sovereignty in the DR, um, and I think the the anger about this earlier history obviously came came to bear on the um, on on the '65 war as well. So I'm curious about the '65 war. The Johnson administration puts forward the idea that uh, we have to in, incur, we have to invade because the Dominican Republic could turn into another Cuba. And, and that was the line that was used. I, I'm wondering whether that was a rational fear during the Cold War, in your point of view. You know, Juan Bosch was so, he's, a, he's, a, he's an interesting person, but he, he was, he even, um, you know, I, I, would, I would describe his work as, um, as Marxist. I would describe much of his fiction um, as kind of social realist. He hones into issues of domestic violence, around gender. He, he, he's very, um, there's a, uh, a very close attention to the indignities of poverty and the violence, um, the kind of slow violence of everyday life in the countryside in the Dominican Republic. 
but um, he was not, he, he, he at least alleged that he was really not a Marxist as such. I think he was really a social reformer. And it's interesting because Kennedy in, initially was, was, you know, gave a lot of support to Juan Bosch when he was first elected. Um, and he saw him as, as, as the kind of um, young Kennedy-like reformer who's going, to, who's going to bring forth a lot of the social changes that had to happen that would have prevented some kind of um, Cuban takeover in the Dominican Republic. I mean, Ke uh, Johnson was counseled by all of his advisors not to get involved. That, uh, and he, he went against all of their advice. So, I, I, you know, I, I think it's complicated, but I do think that Bosch, at least at the onset, was not um, a card-carrying communist. Of course, neither was Fidel Castro. Um, but, I, I, you know, I, that's, that's not how I understand Bosch. Well, as we know that President Johnson didn't always listen to what his advisors wanted, and this is this is during the period even before Vietnam gets ramped up, forty-two thousand U.S. troops get sent to the Dominican Republic during this particular period of time, and you've talked about how that continues to resonate in the Dominican psyche. I wonder, though, about the Dominican political system. This this really changes the direction of how politics are done in. In, in that particular country, does does the left ever come back? The larger trajectory of the left in the Dominican Republic, I mean, the, the greatest tragedy, I think, in the long term of the U.S. intervention in 65 is that it it, it brings back Trujillo's um, closest ally, Joaquin Balaguer, in, into, into office during a period of dramatic repression. Los Doce Años, the 12 years, which was the first... Um, uh, su successive uh, Balaguer regimes was um, involved a kind of demobilizing of the youth that had been that had you know come into into you know into their own as a political force around Bosch and around this the civil resistance of the '65, and he actually a lot of his repression um, involved attacks on the black youths of the the shanty towns. Um, and uh, this is another thing I heard a lot about because I had this, uh, I had a, uh, a research assistant who had grown up in Capotillo and he, you know, he told me that it was really just, you know, if you were black and you were poor and you lived in these, in the very neighborhoods where the 65 intervention had taken place and all the battles were, you were just, um, it was, it, you know, you were constantly at risk of being picked up by the police. So the Balaguer period, you know, and Balaguer, he, he, he's one of these um, figures who he was in office for 12 years and then he came back. And in fact, he, he's really, um, he clocks more decades in, in, in the, the Dominican political process than, than Trujillo. Then, you know, he's, he's really um, a very crafty um, and scary figure who um, played a, a really, crucial role and he, he he kept the lid on the presidency for so long and you know the Dominican Republic has had it's it's you know the left really was not able to operate during the Trujillo years and also during the Balaguer years um the left goes into exile basically I mean Juan Bosch himself went into exile in Cuba and lived most of his career in in Puerto Rico and in Cuba um you know, Dominican exiles have also spent a lot of time in Haiti. Um, there's a lo long tradition of the, the left in the Dominican Republic um, taking, you know, spending 
spending time in Haiti and vice versa, Haitian exiles during during the Duvalier period also taking refuge in the Dominican Republic. So it's it's really, I think, tragic that the Dominican Republic has not been able to kind of take take stock of its own um, political uh, agency in a, in a way. And and it, you know, it, it, I think the sixty five intervention foreclosed democracy. This is one of the most free and fair elections in Dominican history, and you know that it was that possibility was foreclosed by the intervention. Thank you so much, Lauren Derby of UCLA, the co-editor of the Dominican Republic Reader, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week for Latin Pulse. This summer, Latin Pulse is available on a variety of new online platforms, including. The new website, Latin America Goes Global. You can find us there at Latin America Goes Global, all one word, dot O-R-G. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, Production assistant Sierra Hancock and producer Jim Singer. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions. <laughs> <laughs>